Hi everyone, welcome back to The Lila Joe Show and welcome to season three. I'm Lila. I'm an elite ice dancer and a psychology student. I'm also very curious about people and the fascinating stories that we all have to tell. So today, please welcome my guest to share their story. Today's conversation is with Amy Griffin. Amy is the founder and managing partner of G9 Ventures, which is an early stage fund focused on supporting companies that empower consumers to live, look, and feel better. The portfolio includes investments in Goop, Roe, Cosas, and Bumble. Prior to founding G9, Amy worked at Sports Illustrated as a sports marketing and Olympic manager. In 2019, Amy co-founded Social Studies, a fully integrated party planning rental platform with Jessica Latham. In addition to her work at G9 and Social Studies, Amy has held board positions at a number of organizations, including KIPP, the Boys Club of New York City, the Virginia Athletics Foundation, and the Mead Foundation. Amy graduated from the University of Virginia with a BA in English and was the captain and MVP of the varsity women's volleyball team. She lives in New York City with her husband, John, and their four beautiful children. Amy is also an avid athlete who completed the Hawaii Ironman in 2017. She is a relentless cheerleader of her children, a diehard fan of her home state of Texas, and is constantly on the search for an authentic burrito in New York City. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So my interviews are structured like workouts. We start off with a warm-up, then we move into a longer period of high-intensity questioning, and then to wrap it all up, we're going to cool down. How does that sound? Well, you know I love that because I'm an athlete at heart myself, so I love the analogy, and I love the fact that I get to warm up before the hardball questions. Yes. So let's do it. So I know that you've been on the hunt. Have you found the best burrito in New York City? <laughs> You know, I have not yet found it in New York City, but I, you will laugh in that I, when I go home to Texas, I bring them home with me and I freeze them and I keep them in my freezer to have when I'm home in New York. They are from a down and dirty dive restaurant that I just absolutely love that is very thin tortilla, a little bit of cheese, refried beans, B-E-A-N, bean burrito. That's how you order them. And it's called Taco Villa and it's the best place on the planet. Okay, and I respect that you freeze them. I think that's something I would do. And as a mother of four, what is something that you must have in your bag at all times? Ooh, that's a very good question. Goldfish. Okay, quick answer. Goldfish, and more often because I'm gonna eat them than the kids. Fair enough. And for the launch party of your company's social studies, I know that you asked guests to provide tidbits, something about themselves, so that their seatmate could get to know them. What is something that you would write down on that note card to introduce yourself to your seatmate? Wow, Lila, I'm highly impressed that you have done your homework to understand what we did for our launch party. And that was an amazing night because we were able to find tidbits about each person on the left and the right so that the other person could talk about them. And it really did make for an interesting conversation. Um, Something interesting I would put on my card. Maybe there's more to me than meets the eye. Okay. Well, we're definitely, everyone listening will find out very soon because we're going to get into it. And other than your mom's amazing chicken spaghetti casserole, what is a staple at a big family dinner? Tacos. Always tacos. Solid answer. Anything with a taco is a good, is a good, it's a good night. Anytime you have a taco night, it's always a good night. Agreed. And you recently took a year long family trip around the world. To which culture did you connect the most? You know, interestingly, I it's funny because my seven-year-old often tells people when we talk about our travels, he always tells everyone that he loved China the most. It makes me a little bit worried because we didn't go to China. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but he was five at the time and just turned five. And, you know, there's a combination of so many cultures that I love. We were moving so quickly at some points in time that I was trying to remember how you say hello and please and thank you in every language and what the currency was. And so there were definitely common threads that ran throughout the entire year. Uh, I would say that there were some really wonderful, peaceful moments in Laos and the, the people are wonderful and just the, 
you know, the pared back, slowed down nature of, of the way they lived and the smiles, the friendliness, the genuineness was sort of a midpoint in our career. And, and that was really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. I mean, I could go on and on. I could, I could also then juxtapose that with Berlin and say that I really valued Berlin. It was nothing like I thought it would be in terms of the culture. I thought it would be sad and dark and, and, um, I mean, it was absolutely the opposite. It was welcoming and open and um, cultural and diversified, and the architecture was incredible. The food was amazing. And so seeing something that was so dark, through such a dark period, um, blossom and get to see it on the other side, you know, it it was really, really incredible. Mm, I, I can imagine. What delicacy did you try on this trip for the first time that you didn't know you were missing out on? Absolutely. My children and I were in Thailand and we went into a 7-Eleven and we bought grasshopper chips and they were grasshopper. The whole bag was of grasshoppers and they were nice and crunchy and protein and everyone agreed they were great. That is interesting. (laughs) I'll have to try that out one day. I'll add it to the list. You know, you wouldn't have known you were eating grasshoppers had you not had you not seen the bag. Okay, maybe I wouldn't look at the bag and just think that it was a nice crunchy protein snack. It, it was, it was very filling. Okay, so Amy, that's our warm up done. How are you feeling? Are you loose, blood pumping, ready to go? I mean, I'm getting there. I'm doing a few stretches on the side. I'm a little nervous for what's gonna oh, happen. No, next. don't worry, it's nothing crazy. <laughs> I'm excited. It's nothing crazy. So you were born in Amarillo, Texas, where you were raised along with three siblings by incredible parents, Julie and Gregory Mitchell. And you said that you lived the Texas dream. What does the Texas dream embody? Hmm. Gosh, such a good question. You know, I think that what's interesting is is growing up. I I did. I had wonderful parents and amazing siblings, and I think that you know the greatest gift a parent can give a child is sort of the opportunity to individuate and become who they are on their own without pushing them to become that person. And I think that early on, I figured that out for myself and I knew that I wanted to go other places and see other places and, and um, you know, leave the state to go to college, which at the time felt like it might've even been a big deal uh, for my friend group to say, I'm gonna choose to do something outside of what the norm is. And it was obviously the best decision I ever made. It would probably, you know, I would say, John, my husband and I talk about if you change one thing, then you know you never know. So I wouldn't change anything that happened in my past uh, my past life before uh, going to college in at Virginia and then moving to New York. But I think just um, having parents give their kids that strong ability to to think for themselves and critical thinking and the ability to to find their own way and and also to celebrate the, the failures along yes. with the successes. Um, because I think that if you don't do that, you really don't know how to fail yeah. and you don't know how to rise from that. Um, you don't know how to fail well and you don't know how to succeed well. Exactly. And, and, and I think life is definitely somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I think it's so crucial to be able to get to that point of celebrating failure in a way. Absolutely. Um, it, it helps you understand yourself better and, you know, make different choices on the other side and, um, failure is a big part of, you know, what it's all about. Yeah. What did you learn about community and relationships growing up in Amarillo? Well, that's a great, I mean, community and relationships are really the existence of my entire life. I, I grew up in a, uh, my grandmother, which is, the story is wonderful. And I, and I really recognize I didn't dive deep enough into it. My grandmother was alive. Um, we lost her when I was just going to college. And, um, and she was a woman who started three businesses. My, my father's, father passed away when my dad was four so my grandmother brought her sister in and raised three children with her and she started three amazing businesses um and one was a convenience store chain one was a wedding registry business and one was a lighting store sort of a a lighting store called Mitchell Electric and so she was this amazing powerhouse who how she juggled three businesses and three children at that time in life with no cell phone I have no idea but I think that, you know, growing up the daughter of a community store operator, we were just always taught that everybody is a hard, everyone works hard um, and everybody deserves to be treated equally. And, you know, when you grow up in a small town, um, 
it's just a sense of community and camaraderie and everyone roots for each other on the Friday night football games. I mean, I lived, I lived Friday night lights, uh, for better or worse. That was one of the schools in our district. We were part of the whole Friday night lights theme. So everyone always asks me, do you love that show? And I say, ah, I never watched the show. That was my life. That was my life. I don't need to see it. Oh, that's amazing. And from a young age, you always thought that things would happen and developed a formula of sorts. You said, it doesn't matter how smart you are, as long as you put the work in, believe in yourself, bring other people along for the ride, and ask for help from the right people, it will happen. And I love this sense of certainty that that you have and that you feel. So who or what gave you this belief as a young girl? You know, I have to say, I always ask my mom and dad, and I say, why did I choose to go do other things or go away far away from home and just decide that I was going to just leave the, you know, the family and go do other things and, and not live where they all live, um, which in itself, in itself was, you know, not a huge accomplishment, but just a risk that I, that I decided was worth taking uh, as a young person. And um, I think my mom always says that I just had it in me and that I was new. She always says that by the eighth grade, I wouldn't let her work on my English papers mm-hmm. to help her with my, with my, my English papers. But no, I think, you know, along the way I had, I had some great coaches and people that really believed in me on the sports side that when someone tells you that you can do anything, if you put your mind to it and and they they stop you in your tracks and say, Hey, I believe in you. Um, then, then you start to believe it yourself Mm -hmm. and you start to see it in yourself. And so, uh, I think that I had that given to me through coaches on the sports side and, and it's trickled into other areas of my life, but I try now to really pass that on to others and, and other young women, especially who are, trying to achieve in whatever it is that they're trying to do. Mm. And maybe early on the business roots were planted by watching your dad with his convenience store chain, Tootin Totem, I think it's called. (laughs) And another prominent theme in your life is the empowerment and celebration of women. Who was your superwoman growing up? Well, I had several of them. I mean, my mom, I look back at my mom, I was actually talking about this today, and my mom is extraordinary. I mean, I always say, mom, you should have been a state senator or governor or run for president. Um, but times were different then. My mom can juggle 25 things in a day from making a spaghetti casserole to giving a speech to raising four kids. And she makes it all happen seamlessly. And they're definitely all avenues that I myself cannot put together all in one day. I could never make everything come together the way that she does. And I just have a lot of respect for her you know, as you get older, you recognize the, um, the pulls of life once you have a family and, and, and work and you just recognize that, that what's really important, you have to put it first. And my mom put the four of us and my father first always and always has, and it was just really powerful to watch. And so I hope I picked up some of that from my mom. Um, I know my sister has, my sister is also incredible. She has five kids. One point in time, she had five children under the age of four. And they're both just doers for, for others at all times and at all costs. And it's it's humbling to watch to this day. Mm. And honestly, I think that's definitely rubbed off on you too. I think that's undeniable. Huh. And in a gorgeous Instagram post to your mom, you wrote, Mom, you are all things good, kind, loving, thoughtful, purposeful, respectful, and brave. And two words struck me the most, purposeful and brave. How did your mm. mom demonstrate these qualities? You know, I remember, I guess, to say purposeful, um, well, she was always purposely kind, and there was no other way around that. Not that that's the right way to always be, but my mom found a way to always make, turn everything into, made everyone feel like they were welcomed and wanted. That's why everyone hung out at our house mm-hmm. 24-7, Friday night, Saturday nights. They were always at our house, which was wonderful. She was always welcoming. But... When I say brave, you know, if my mom was to be listening to this podcast, she might not even know that she's, that I think she's brave. And I think it's because, um, she, many, many years ago, gosh, it was 20 years ago, she faced breast cancer and won the battle and she stepped up to the challenge. And I remember the moment where she said, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what decisions to make. And, you know, I'm asking your dad to help me with those decisions. And I remember the conversation because I was, uh, just out of college and in my, in my first job. And I said, mom, you know, you, you have to make those decisions. You have to make that choice for yourself. And that's hard when all you've ever done is give to others for the last 
20 years and she stepped up and made the choices and um, she's incredibly healthy and vibrant and beautiful and looks better today than she did when she was 20. Oh, oh, that's amazing. And she sounds like such an incredibly inspirational woman and a wonderful role model to have in your life. As everyone can hear, you are an athlete. We spoke about that and your warm up was very impressive. And you started sports young at around four or five and trained at a high level in both tennis and volleyball. And you mentioned that there were two tickets to get out of Amarillo, academics and sport. Why was sport your chosen ticket? In sport, I had I had several people that would say to me, you, you can excel at this if you put your mind to it. And um, I do think people need a little bit of a guide. They need a little bit of guidance along the way to say, hey, you're good at this, or look, you did great in that, or just to give someone, to show people different paths to, um, to success or to give them different paths to go off in the world and, and, and meet new challenges. I mean, I, I have a friend today, we were just talking about how her son loves to um, look at homes and, and design. And so maybe to be an architect and how amazing that you're, you're giving him the opportunity to do that. And, and so we were talking about that today, but as an aside, I think for me, athletics, I always have seen the world physically. So every challenge, everything I've ever felt or seen or been a part of it's always I felt it very physically and I've always seen it as a mountain and if I can just sort of run through it or run over it or run past it that I could make it happen. And so I, I, I kind of decided at an early age that I could push myself <laughs> for better or worse physically. I, I could I would just work harder than anybody else. And so I knew with that that if I worked harder then hopefully the outcomes would come and Frankly, when the outcomes didn't come or, you know, they didn't come the way that I thought they came, I always think I, I, I think I always felt really good about the fact that I had to work hard because that would put me ahead of the pack. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I loved it too. You know, I loved, I loved the physicality of sport. I, 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 I love the competition on some levels, but I really loved the practice and I loved the commitment and I loved, I loved the training. In fact, as I get older, I start to recognize, I don't really even know if I did love the competition. I love the training. I would be the best training partner for anyone in any sport. I could push them to all new levels, but then I, they could win and it wouldn't really bother me. I just, I love hearing this because in all my interviews, the main, the main point or a common parallel is the fact that it's important to appreciate the process and the journey and not the outcome or the accolades. So the fact that you craved the training on a daily basis and that grind is just so amazing to hear. I love the journey. The journey for me, and that's why I did other things after I was out of college in terms of training for triathlons and things like that because I love the journey for me and the, and the people you meet on the, on the journey and the people you can help on the journey and that's sort of what makes the memories and the stories. I mean, I talk about it often in my college days that now that I look back on college, I can't remember certain um, when we won or lost certain teams. And I actually have a friend I was reconnected in the last two years with a woman who was the setter at Duke. And she's someone who I really respected, even though she was always across the net. You know, volleyball, you're always across the net, so you're never really interacting. I, I could tell she was a really deep person and a, and a wonderful woman. And um, I had a lot of respect for her as an athlete. And I came across her recently. She's now the school nurse at a school in LA. And so, you know, it reminded me that it really is more about the journey. And I can remember every bus ride. And I, and I all talk about how I could probably order a sandwich for 13 girls and still tell you who wanted mayo and who wanted lettuce and who, you know, hold the tomato on one. Uh, because those were relationships that I forged in my four years at school. And mm. so whether we beat Georgia Tech or not that night, I just don't remember. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And... So eventually you made the decision to commit to volleyball and got a full ride at the University of Virginia, which is amazing. And your dad suspected that you would be leaving Texas for good, yet he offered you a bouquet of yellow roses when you left for Virginia to Mm -hmm. try to keep the Texan nostalgia alive. What else did your dad pass on to you that you took with you upon departure and that allowed you to tackle this new chapter in your young adulthood? You know, uh, my dad is, is very competitive, and I think my dad was always part of our sports teams. I, I, I think about both my parents, actually, I was saying this again today, that both my parents were constant presence in my athletic endeavors, and um, I can remember, they, they never missed 
a game of anything anywhere. And I can remember always seeing them in the stands and, and having them there. And really it was just their support, you know, knowing that they were there, but knowing that I had the courage and the strength to go off and do my own thing. And, you know, it's only recently as you, as you get older and you, and you get a little wiser about your, your, your inner self and your, what drives you to recognize that, you know, you, you come up with those decisions because you, you make those decisions yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think as a parent, you know, I've often been told sometimes that all you can really do is just hold their hand across the street. Other than that, you know, make sure they don't get hit by a car. Other than that, it's, it's so genetically programmed. I have four very, very different children. So I can say that that's the truth. So to say that my parents um, did a really good job of, of just supporting. I think that's, that's the best thing they can do. And like you said, they allowed you to kind of find your individuality and really pursue that and carve your own path in life. And you said that your time at UVA was the best four years of your life. And this is so often the promise to seniors going off to college, but it doesn't always play out this way. So why was this true for you? When I visited UVA, my parents always talk about the fact that I visited and I went, I, I went for a loan for some reason that weekend. I, I, they must have something else going on and I flew to Virginia and I landed. This is also obviously sad to say, but free cell phone. So I landed and I walked on the lawn at University of Virginia and I felt this sort of presence of history and again, this cultural, you know, hub of, you know, intellectual curiosity. And I literally called my parents that night and said, I'm going to commit to the school, but I hadn't even gone to see the gym yet. I don't think, I think I'd met with the coach, maybe even the player, not all the players, but the, let's just say the visit was not complete. But I knew, like, I think that a lot of times I can look back now and realize you just have to listen to your inner voice and really trust yourself. And if you trust yourself and you believe that's the right decision, then it is the right decision. And in this case, I knew right away. I mean, I've been on other school visits and I knew this is, this is where I'm going to school and this is where I'm going to make my life. And it was so different than anywhere else I'd been. I knew that it would be a challenge for me because it was so different than anywhere else I had really lived in my, my life. And I'd, I'd always lived in Texas in a, small, a fairly small town. But you know, it's also, I remember arriving, there were trees everywhere and it was just like, it was different from a landscape perspective. And so there was this moment of sort of a gut check where I said, I said, you know, are you ready to challenge yourself? And, and the University of Virginia definitely did not disappoint. Mm. And you're up for a challenge. Yeah. And you know, I just felt, I felt at home there and I, and I knew that, you know, very on point with what Jefferson or why he created the university, I was the idea that you you, you learn so that you can, and you learn all kinds of things. And they were very open at the time to me being an athlete, but me doing, being in part of student organizations. And I, I really was able to try to do as much as I could at, at UVA and get the most out of it. And whereas I looked at other schools and I was told, you will only play volleyball, mm -hmm. you will live in a separate dorm, you will eat in a separate cafeteria, you will not interact with other students, you will, your grades will suffer because you will miss this much class. And, even then, sort of that idea didn't really appeal to me. Mm -hmm. So the idea of saying, oh, well, do you want to go play for the school that will, not that I would have even gotten a full scholarship to this a school of that nature, but, you know, do you want to go play um, at a school where you might win a national championship or do you want to go to a school where you're going to love the school and the community and contribute mm -hmm. as an athlete and a student? And so that was, that was just the best decision ever made. And I'm sure that you've appreciated the discovery of parallels in all that you do and have done and the skills that transfer so powerfully. So I'd really like to talk about this. You were the captain of your volleyball team at UVA. What qualities do you think a good captain must have? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. You know, the team votes for that every year. So, you know, I, I, I did feel like I was a leader of the team. I felt that I could hear out all the opinions of the different, the different opinions on the team. And you have to just communicate well, right? I mean, communication, you have to communicate when you're on the court, you had to be able to communicate when you were off the court in terms of, you think about 15 girls, 13 girls and 15 girls at a time on the team when you're all in college dealing with all the things you have just, just growing up and life and um and so it's complicated and it's messy and so to be able to be together as a team and a unit i, I think i recognize that very early on i love being part of a team and i mean i'm so close to several of the girls on my team in fact i do business with some of them and i 
we were just all really close. And even the ones that I don't talk to on a, even a yearly basis, you know, not a minute goes by that sometimes I don't think of the great memories that we had and things that we did together because, you know, there's, there's something really powerful about a group, especially a group of women. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Can't be stopped. What is a skill that only an outside hitter in volleyball will have that is a secret weapon in your life since varsity sport? Well, I guess when you talk about the success and the failure, so it's funny because I have tiny hands. If you look <laughs> at my hands and feet, people laugh because compared to my height, it almost looks like I could fall over. I mean, they're not <laughs> that small, but they're pretty small for my height. I'm almost 5'11 and I wear a nine or nine and a half shoe. And so I was very disappointing to all of my coaches, if anyone ever heard this, because my hands were tiny. So I was not a good blocker. And so the blocker is meaning that when the ball is coming back over, you jump up to block the ball from coming back. And I just had small hands, so I was never. I even had fingers that were broken backwards in college, in high school. Um, they were broken backwards because the ball was coming up, and you know I didn't clear the net high enough with my hands. Could also say I could jump higher, but I did have small hands. But you know, on the flip side, for the success piece, I just knew that if I, on the hitting side, I just, you know, I would just, I was a warrior on the front line, and I would swing away, and if I didn't get the kill on that first set and I would go for it again and I could go for it again and I was never scared to take that I was never scared to take the ball I always wanted the ball you had to want the ball you had to want the set you had to be excited that you were the one that was going to win the point mm -hmm. wow and there's a certain jersey that you have framed in your house which is not just a fun memento but a beacon that holds so much meaning to you so how do you recount the memory behind this jersey to your four children to emphasize the message that it portrays? Gosh, Lila, that's so nice because I don't even know, you know, you get lost in life with all the things that are happening with your kids. I don't know that all my children even know the story or why it's so powerful to me, but the jersey sort of tucked away down in a small room in my house in the basement. But when I see it, it's, it's really, really powerful to me because uh, when we were in school, I, I always would say, I don't understand why all the male teams have their names on the back of their shirts. So we're sort of nameless and we're, which was more of a metaphor for the overall, you know, the idea of how women were treated and, and, and what was happening in women's sports at the time and just the budgets of women's sports uh, not being revenue sports mm -hmm. for the most part. And so in my fourth year of college, my coach at the time came to me and she said, I have a surprise for you. And I think she either showed me the jersey or told me that the jerseys were coming, that we were all going to have our names on the back. And it was just really powerful for me to see and be able to wear my name on the back of my jersey. And it's just a simple thing, but it was something that we as athletes had worked so hard for. And, you know, at the time in college, I didn't recognize that it was this sort of feminist bent that I was so excited to have my name. It was, it was just exciting to see my name. But but, the, but it holds so much meaning for me every time I see it, and 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 also just to think of all the progress that's been made. I mean, yeah. at the University of Virginia today, there is an incredible leader who I cried with on the phone the first time we got on the phone together. Who is the first female African American athletic director of you know a, a big school like UVA, and she is making such great strides for for women and for athletes and. Uh, I'm really proud to see the decisions she makes uh, through the lens of, as, of a woman, as a caregiver and mother and an educator and an all-American basketball player herself. So uh, her name is Carla Williams, and she's, she's such a rock star. Wow. Sounds like a rock star. And of course, your dad's prediction had been correct, and you decided to trade your yellow roses for a big apple and you headed <laughs> to the to New York City so you moved in with five women in a West Village apartment with a FedEx box and a 1-800 mattress what goals and ambitions were hidden away in that FedEx box I don't know that I really had goals and ambitions I knew that I was searching for excitement and and new and new possibilities and you know, I, I want. I, I think I always knew. I knew when I was living at UVA that I wanted to. When I was going to school at UVA, that I wanted to move to New York City. And it was just again, it was another part of the unexpected. And one might say it's just challenging enough to move to New York City and find a job for yourself. And then it's challenging enough just to get yourself to the subway and find your your way to work for the first few months and to buy a subway ticket. I mean, every little every step forward was a challenge worth meeting. And 
they're, they're little challenges now when you look back on them, but they all add up. Mm. And you started off working at Working Women, Working Mother magazine, and then after a year at that magazine, a friend from UVA made an introduction to somebody at Sports Illustrated. How did this friendly introduction turn into a job in the marketing department? You know, I look back on the days at Working Mother and the friend that UVA actually made, um, was a woman in career services who I'd done a lot of stuff with in athletics. She actually made an intro. Um, she was one of the people who made an intro. And there was a man named, there is a man who I'm very fond of named Barry Parkhill. He's a former professional basketball player. He's been at the University of Virginia for, you know, 40 or so years. And he was my first meeting to say, Barry, I, I want to work in New York City. Can you help me? And um, and so Barry, Barry helped me make that call. And so, you know, sports helped move me into my career through relationships that I had, which is, I think is also great. But it was really, a, it was an interesting time to be sitting in a ma- magazines with, with Gloria Steinem walking into the hallways and everyone standing with their back against the wall as she walked through with this huge, magical, crazy, wild presence of just moving the world forward and and, and taking a different opinion on, you know, that wasn't widely held at the time. And so that was incredible. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And, you know, you never really realize you're having an opportunity until after it's passed. Mm-hmm. And then knew, again, that I love sports. I love the idea of, of the stories of sports. And the time the Sports Illustrated building was, in, you know, on the same blocks, the building I was working in. And I had an intro there and then I started off, I worked, um, I worked as an assistant. I literally started as an assistant. They said, there's no way you can't just come into the marketing department. And so I said, well, that's fine. I'll just take a job in any way, shape or form that I can. And I still laugh because I was an assistant and I was, I think I was a horrible assistant <laughs> because I was always trying to do other projects and prove that I wanted to be marketing and I wanted to be doing, you know, campaigns for brands. And I am sure I was, worst assistant I wasn't good at taking messages or logging in the advertising spins or you know I, I, I wasn't a good assistant so you learn <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like your time at Sports Illustrated was particularly formative due to the mentors that took you under their wing at the time and I believe that a mentorship is largely reciprocal and that the mentor and the mentee add value to each other's lives what criteria do you have in place when seeking out mentors is there a particular mindset or behavioral tendencies that you admire? Well, the woman that comes to mind is a, name, a woman named Cynthia Howard, who also was an athlete. There were a lot of athletes that I worked with, but Cynthia had been an All-American at Virginia, which is, again, she played um, lacrosse and field hockey, and she is an incredible athlete, but, you know, she's an incredible communicator. And she was, she brought me under her wing, and I think one of the things I would just say about qualities for a mentor is mentorship just happens on its own because you want to get back and you want to bring people along for the ride or you've been given an opportunity and you want to, you want to share that. And I would say what I learned from my time at Sports Illustrated is there were also people along the way that weren't great mentors and other women that you felt for whatever reason didn't want you to succeed. And mm-hmm. I think the, um, the thing I learned about my time there was you, you learn how you learn about the things that you want to do in work, and you you learn about the ways that you want to treat people, and the ways you want people to treat you, and then you don't repeat that oh. again as you move forward in life, and you know how to stay away from the people that didn't treat you the way you would treat others. Oh, interesting. And working in the Olympic division at Sports Illustrated, you had the opportunity to travel to the Olympic Games in Sydney, mm-hmm. where many of your friends were actually competing. How would you describe the Olympic atmosphere? You know, Sydney, again, opened up a whole new world to me. And uh, I have two things about Sydney that really stand out. One, you know, someone who loved sport and and loved being part of of, um, sport my whole life. I think it was incredible because the timing was such that all the athletes that I've been in school with, people from UVA, people that I grew up with, I mean, one of my high school friends won a gold medal he won the silver but was given the gold later because uh, of doping um, in wrestling so he was given the gold because the person he lost to in the finals was found guilty of of doping and Mm -hmm. so I was able to witness his um, Olympic run in wrestling I had a friend who was playing tennis who I'd grown up with in Texas I had a friend who I have friends that I have now uh, to this day who are very dear friends who I didn't, didn't even actually know at that time that were there in Sydney and 
and actually they met in Sydney. So there was a lot of, and I had a friend who was a swimmer at UVA who won a gold medal and at the time didn't even have any family members there. So I was the one that went out with him with his gold medal around his neck to celebrate and shot from the rooftop. So just the whole idea of celebrating sport and, and also the Australians. I mean, there is no one who cares about sport more than the Australians. And so that was incredible. And I'd say, I, I do remember, I remember crying on the way home from Sydney because I said, well, wait, the, the Australians are a lot like Texans. And I just felt so at home. It's like Texas with a beach in Sydney. <laughs> um, but one thing that really stands out from my time in Sydney is that, you know, we had to ask, we had to, earn these positions to leave our real jobs at Sports Illustrated to be able to go on the trip. And you had to take a chance and leave your job and hope that when you got back, there was still a job at the company. And I remember there was, there's a woman who I have so much respect for who worked so hard and was the event director at the time at Sports Illustrated. Her name is Blaze Cashin. And we had to apply for these jobs. And, and so, you know, I applied for the position that I had and I went all out on my Application. I remember, I, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was some kind of cereal that I put on her desk with a spoon about how I would eat it up and I would, you know, dive in or Kellogg's great or something like that. <laughs> I can't remember. It was very marketing, slogany, corny. But I have to say, I'm so grateful that, you know, another woman, Blaze, took a chance on me and I was young and she gave me this opportunity and it was just like sport. She said, I believe you can do this. And I'm always forever grateful that she gave me that opportunity. Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Lila Joe Show. Understandably, this job was very demanding and you found yourself working 24-7 and not really experiencing life in New York City. So instead of going to a restaurant or a trendy bar, you decided to sign up to run the New York City Marathon with a blind man. And, I mean, as one does. And another man also signed up called John Griffin. And this blind man that you were running with after spending time with both of you, he said he would say, you like him, don't you? Mm-hmm. What do you think this man sensed between you and John that gave him a clue that you would be more than just running partners? Well, I mean, the whole thing was just obvious from the get-go, and it was so powerful. I mean, I say it all the time that I knew very early on without saying anything to our friend Eddie, who's this wonderful blind man who we did run the marathon with, but I really recognized very quickly that I had so much respect for this person that we would either be, I would either have him as my best friend in life or I would marry him. And mm-hmm. I told I told the blind man that when he said, you know, you like John, you and John are dating. And I said, no, we're not. <laughs> and I said, but I like him so much that if we have one date, I will either marry him if we have a date, or otherwise we'll be, I will remain very close with him as friends. And so the relationship was so pure and fun and exciting because we didn't date uh, until after the well after the marathon and after we had our first date we never spent another day apart so it was it was incredible and the timing was also really incredible because the year that we were running the marathon it was a year one that my mom had had gone through breast cancer and two I, and I, I just had said life I started to recognize yes I was working long hours at Sports Illustrated I was absolute the low bottom of the barrel um, in in my job and on the on the ladder and I knew I had to work hard and I was willing to do that but then I also recognized that there was so much more to life and I knew myself well enough that I wouldn't get out and do that so I said I have to do something that gets me outside so I said well I paired I got paired with Eddie and I said you know I know if I sign up to run the marathon and I show up and, and I don't he doesn't he shows up and I don't show up then he has to run he can't run so I have to physically leave the office and I get to do two things. I get to be with someone and learn, you know, from someone who sees, sees or doesn't see the world in a very different way than I do. And I get to exercise, which I love to do. And I get to be outside. So it was sort of a win-win. And then to meet John through that, it was, it was just meant to be. Mm. And you said that John is one of the smartest people you've ever met and is an incredible teacher. So what is the most significant lesson that John has taught you? Well, I, I think John's one of the smartest people I've ever met. I mean, again, he's the best person for me. Like he is the, the best, the only person that I could ever be with. And he, he just completes me. And so for that reason, I think he's all of those things and above. But I think there's two sides of John. And one, which is on the business side, I would say is John is really good about 
recognizing that if something's bothering you, he always says to me, you know, take time out and really recognize, are you going to act on this? Because is, are you going to remember this two, three, four, five years down the road? Mm-hmm. If not, it's not important. It's not an important moment in life. So it's not even important to take it on or to act on it or to make the decision right here now. So he's very good, very good with decision-making. He teaches classes on decision-making in, in the business world and relationships in the business world. And I, I always, I love to go in here. I learned something different from him as a business person every time I go to one of his classes. And um, that's always astounding to me because I do learn something about him every time he teaches. And he's a, definitely a born teacher. He's the son of a teacher. But I think that there's a whole side of John that, no one will ever know except for me. Mm-hmm. And, and that is uh, just to, to love unconditionally. And so that's not a business trait at all. And mm-hmm. those in the business world would be, you know, would be sort of maybe blown away or they wouldn't know this about John because John, I have, I have this knowledge that John loves me. Just he wouldn't care if I sat and watched TV and soap operas and ate bonbons all day or if I, you know, ran for senator or if I just made it clear that I wanted to take care of our four children. There's no conditions with our relationship and, you know, I find in my life that there, I don't have that many opportunities to do that without, there's zero conditions in our relationship oh and I would hope that for, for anyone. Yeah, that's so special and it's really, it's heartwarming to hear. And meeting John and falling in love changed your life dramatically when you found yourself about to leave for six months to go to the Beijing Olympics with Sports Illustrated. So you made the decision to quit your job. And so began the decade of the bookshelf years. Could you please explain what this term means? <laughs> That's funny. You know, I've had friends, some of my closer, closer friends and friends that are both friends in the business world say, maybe you shouldn't talk about the bookshelf years, but because it defines what was happening in those years, but it's actually the truth. And I realized that, you know, I did, I did put my job, uh, life was changing. And at that moment in time, I was building the far most important thing in our life. I was building our life together and I was building our home and, and we were having children. And the years went by sort of at light speed because now my youngest, you know, when I, I think I woke up, I feel like I sort of woke up the minute my youngest went to kindergarten, but <sighs> Interesting, you know, those years when I look back and I call them the bookshelf years because I felt like I was either pregnant or nursing or taking care of very small toddlers for eight or so years. And so I would sit in this room and I would feed a baby and I would look at this one bookshelf that had, you know, a hundred books in it. I would look at the books and I would count them sometimes. Sometimes I would look at the spine of a book and I would think, will I ever read that book? (laughs) And then sometimes I'd be so bleary-eyed and I would think will I ever read a book again um and, and what is that book and will that book be important to me and I think I read it once before but you know it was just it was so those are the bookshelf years and I wouldn't trade them for the world ever and they were they were incredible and I sort of again was honing my sense of self as I went through those too and so that was a phase that was that was wonderful mm-hmm. and hard. It was hard having young children. Sleep deprivation is a very hard thing. Oh gosh, I I don't I believe that I really do. And during one As of an these, athlete, you can you can handle anything, and then sleep deprivation comes along. I'm not great with sleep deprivation. Okay, good to know. And during one of these four pregnancies, you met another pregnant woman named Juliet in a line for ice cream. How did this serendipitous friendship help you to uncover your passion for investing? You know, Juliet's just a promoter of, of all women and, and people. She's um, she has the real gift of she's a, a gift of communication, and that's something that she has. Juliet was a partner at Hunter Perkins, and then she's gone on to now be part of a firm called Bond Capital, which is one of I think it is the largest female run and fund with Mary Meeker uh, Venture Capital Fund. Mary Meeker and Juliet is her partner, and Juliet and I met um, in the ice cream line. Uh, Juliet was a friend of another very close friend of mine and, and, and also godparents to our children. And we met in the ice cream line with our first child. We'd actually met at a birthday party like two or so years before, I think it was. And then she said, I think I've met you. And um, hello, I met you at Carol's birthday. She has this beautiful English accent. And Juliet, Juliet's just someone that, you know, I was, I was doing some investing. I was, I was, I believed in other founders and people that were doing interesting things in the world. And I'd say, oh, I'm so excited for this person. I want to help them out. And I want to invest in them and be part of their team. And it always went back to team. 
And Juliet would say to me, you know, sort of subtly year after year, why are you not doing this? This is what you're good at. This is what your passion is. You share these things anyway. Why are you not on supporting founding teams, supporting founding teams and supporting founders? Mm -hmm. And it sort of finally got rooted in my head and took some different shapes over the years, but then sort of morphed into what I ended up doing a few years ago. Yeah, which is G9 Ventures, which was solidified, your portfolio was solidified in 2018. And you've said that you sought to distance yourself from being known simply as John's wife. And Uh, I'm wondering, how do you feel that this title has influenced how you are perceived by others? You know, I can't really influence how others perceive me. And that's like, like a great life skill that I think that I'm honing as I, it's uh, through life experience. I can't really, I can't really pinpoint that, but I can pinpoint how I express myself to the world. And I think, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of separating myself from just being John's wife, I think I, I recognize that there is so much of me to give. And it also adds to my relationship with John to be able to bring something back to the table Mm -hmm. and, and have ideas and my own opinions and be going down my own path. And so it just makes us stronger as a couple in our relationship. And, so I, I can't, but I don't really, to be honest, I don't know how others perceive me. People obviously tell you, but, but all I can do is what I try to do every day, which is to put, put out kindness, which goes back to my mom and thoughtfulness and, and purposeful intention into the world in all my interactions. Mm-hmm. So I try to get up every morning and do that. Unless I was nursing some nights. There were some nights I didn't want to get out of it. But yes, that's what I tried to do. <laughs> and how did you learn to recognize and then harness your many edges and take your place as a valuable and rightful venture capitalist? Sometimes I have to say to myself, oh, yeah, I'm a venture capitalist. Because um, <laughs> I think I'm so different than – I obviously am not aiming to compete with the large firms that are you know, putting – hundreds of millions of dollars into, into businesses. I look at myself as someone who's additive and I've really created, I hope, was a reputation for someone who, when I'm a part of a founding team or a deal uh, or believe in a founder, which I love I love going on new teams, is, is that I really will be helpful mm-hmm. and I will be additive and I will help not only the founder, but I will help the business, business succeed and I'll be their partner in doing so. And someone... Someone recently said to me, which I really love this quote, he said to me, you know, in order to be able to feel like you want to invest in something, you have to realize that you're going to be in this for a long time with the founder. And you have to recognize that maybe if you're not close enough with that person to send them an emoji, then you don't really know the founder well enough. I love that. And so I love sort of the emoji test now of trying to be on an emoji basis, first name emoji basis, if you will, with, oh with founders. And I'm not going to be there with all of the founders um, that I'm invested in, but being part of a founding team and, a, and being on a founding team of a, of a new venture or startup or even investing in a later stage once someone is, you know, at a, a new crossroad for how they're building their company is very familiar to me mm. as an athlete. Right. So it's something that feels very uh, natural to me. And 80% of the companies in which you invest are led by women, not because you firmly set out to do so, but because when the decision is based on mission the founder and the story, you find that you're drawn to women. So what makes for an enticing story and the desire to pick up a pen and assist the founder in writing the next chapter? It's interesting too, I should go back, I don't even think it's 80% anymore of, of women founders, but it's very high in my portfolio. And my you know my team and, and one of my, my partners, Anna, who works with me, we have, a, we have an inherent rule that when I sit in a meeting, that if I decide I want to invest in the meeting, she hits me under the table because I like to think that I see something really positive in every single founder that every founder, and it's true, I do. Every founder that I meet is doing something interesting and they're putting themselves out there. So mm-hmm. I often say, you know, they could be selling me, talking about the company they're building that's a tire company or, you know, dog food companies, which are actually very lucrative, or a beauty company. And it all starts to feel like it's the same thing because when someone is, is creating something and they, you know, are building it out of their bedroom and, and not sleeping and building a team and building their own team and raising capital. You, you just, there's normally something, there's something in every single deal and every single deck that I've seen that I, that I really feel, uh, I'm, I'm proud of them for. 
And yeah, I mean, I think it's also, it's, it's like dating. That's my analogy for, for the deals that I do. A lot of it is dating in that you just kind of know, and when you meet someone, you know, also whether the deal is going to be successful or not, I might not know that, but I have a great rapport with the person and it makes you want to know more. It makes you want to go on a second date, the third date, the fourth date. And so it is like dating and it's all the things that you do when you go on a date and you have your checklist and you go through them. Um, is this sustainable? Is this long-term? Does the world need this? You know, how, how are this, how is this new product or company helping the world? Um, am I, do I like interacting with the founder? Do I think they have the ability to build a team? It's, all the same questions that you have whenever you're talking about dating. I like that. And so you're so up with the modern times with these emojis and dating and all these analogies. I really love it. And your mom always... Hardly. I forgot to mention that John Griffin has to talk, teach me how to work on the television every night. He has to do the remote for me. So oh. along with the practical things that he teaches me, he teaches me... I mean, the hard things he teaches me, he teaches a lot of practical things too. <laughs> and over the years, your athleticism and passion for sport certainly has not diminished. And you completed the Hawaii Ironman in 2017. So let me just say that again. Hawaii Ironman. <laughs> and for those... I did it that's, that? that's the whole point. But that's amazing. I interrupted you. Sorry, what was the rest? Did you have more of the well, question? Well, yeah, it was just for everyone listening. So that's 2.4-mile swim, an 112-mile bike ride, and just as a cherry on top, you end it with a marathon. So my question is, why did you decide to do this? I saw it as another challenge. It was something that I, you know, again, that I, I love commitment. As I said to you, I love the journey. I actually remember talking to, to John about how when I crossed the finish line, I was waiting for this huge rush of excitement to, to feel, to feel after I completed it, but I didn't really, I didn't really care. And, and I, after it was over, I was waiting for this sort of like, wait a minute, this accomplishment happened. I'm supposed to have this or feel this sort of metal around my neck. And, the dad just never came. Um, but I look back and I mean, I still have all the stories that I've written down and things that happened along the way of the training. And, you know, I, I just recognize myself. I'm best when I have a goal and I'm at my best when I have, you know, for me, it was always, it was great to have a physical goal and to push myself in ways that I didn't even know. Like I didn't know where I could push myself, but I think I remember being, it was during the summer. I was really doing a lot of my training and, um, someone said to me, I remember, where I was sitting and someone said, well, what happens if you don't finish? And I said, what do you mean? And I remember thinking, what are they, of course I'm going to finish. Like that wasn't really even an option. So I knew that I would finish the race and I had a, I had a very interesting day. I did a number of other half Ironmans, which were great in Canada, California and other places, New Zealand. But this was the first real Ironman and you can, as my coaches would say to me, you can fake a half Ironman. You can do a little bit of training. You can really suffer the day of, and then you can fake it. But you can't fake an Ironman. So again, being someone who loves the discipline and the journey, I just followed this manual, and I did everything. And he said, you know, I've never really had someone that did 99% of the training. And I said, that's because I have to finish. I'm 99.9% sure I'm going to finish. But on the day of, I had an insanely windy day. So I had the unfortunate thing of the wind shifted on me once I got out one way and hoping that I would have a tailwind on the way back. So at one point on the way back of the bike ride, I remember I was riding at nine miles an hour downhill against, it felt like it was against a brick wall. So those were the cards I was dealt that day. And so my bike ride was extraordinarily long, um, but I had a great swim and a great run. And I didn't really even care what the timing was. And, and my family was there and friends had flown all the way across the, you know, across the globe to come watch. And so it's one of my favorite memories. Mm-hmm. It will be one of my favorite memories of my life. Yeah, it's such an accomplishment. But once again, it's that focus on the journey and, and the way that you would have been shaped and realize what you can do during that process. And in pursuit of the journey, we mentioned your year-long trip around the world with your family. What was the most transformative memory from this trip? The memory is actually something that happened after we returned. And I got a call from... But it was so poignant for me because my, I I'd said that I'd set out to do the trip because I hoped that, I, and I hope still to this day that some point in time that all four of my children will have a takeaway that sort of spurs them to do something different or learn something new or share something with someone else and that there's takeaways uh, from that trip, even just the time of spending time together as a family, that I hope that they at some point recognize the takeaways that they have from the trip and that would be a gift that we've given them. But the memory comes from the fact that when we got back, 
the first semester, I think it was, um, of coming, returning, I got a call from my daughter's English teacher and we, she said, can you come in? And we're going to talk about the, the year or the semester and I want to go over the, the papers with you. And so we sat in her parent teacher conference and she said, you know, and I was worried. I said, what is she going to tell us? Mm-hmm. And she said, I have to tell you, I asked the girls to prepare something uh, to tell me about, you know, tell the girl, other girls in their classroom, something that no one else, that they might not, and someone else might not know. So teach the girls, teach the girls in your classroom something that they don't know, and most of the girls in the classroom won't know anything about the subject. So find something that's very nuanced. And at the time, my daughter, who was uh, back in the sixth grade, she was in the sixth grade at the time, and I, I remember she said, and your daughter get, got up and she gave a whole presentation on the genocide in Myanmar. And I said, what? And I just remember I started crying in class and I was, I was teary, but I was like really, I was really proud and I was honored because I have a very, very distinct memory of our trip. If you'd asked me before she wrote the paper, I had a distinct memory of being in Myanmar for the day and these little carts going around and she grabbed me by the sleeve and she said, mom, are we safe? And I said, yeah, yeah, we're safe, we're safe. But at the time I remember thinking, I don't feel safe. And it was one of the only times in the year that I didn't feel safe as we were traveling through villages and things like that. And so it was just really interesting, right, that her inner wisdom kicked in Mm. about what was happening in that place and time. And it was the very next day when we went back to Cambodia that a piece came out in the New York Times about what was really happening in Myanmar. And it was very clear that the time that we were there for that day, we were just on the, the, the tourist path, but that there was so much more going on. And so it's just my favorite takeaway of, of my daughter and, and what she internalized and then you know, shared with others mm. when she got back. Yeah, it's a, it's a deep reflection for someone that's so young and it's amazing to see what she learned along the way. And during these travels, no matter where you went, you said that everything was about being at the table and about community and bringing people together. And so the stage was set for your latest venture as co-founder of Social Studies, which is a fully integrated party planning rental platform that launched in July 2019. And you went on a hike with your childhood friend, Jessica, and had this epiphany, and it's come to fruition. So what were the most prominent themes or concepts on your mood board in the early days of Social Studies? Well, you know, sometimes Jessica and I laugh because we're not, we're not, we don't, we're not concerned and we don't care where someone puts the fork or the knife on the table. It's really more about the idea of bringing people back to the table and giving people the opportunity to entertain at home. And as on a bigger, broader sense, we are creating a new type of behavior where that was how the company was, was created. And that was the idea behind it. Jessica was the event planner. She was the director uh, at Vanity Fair. And at the time when I called, when I was in my bookshelf years, I would call her and say, Jess, I cannot, I, I'm having an event for 15, 20, 12, but I'm having something at home. I want it to be intimate. I want it to be personal. I want it to be a reflection of me. I don't want to, I don't want it to be so fancy that it's actually intimidating. I want it to be welcoming for everyone who sits down at my table. And she would say, no problem, I'll handle it. And that was the beginning of our relationship of doing so many different things together. And she came to me when we went on that hike and she said, you know, Amy, I think there's a real opportunity to bring this to the world such that the rest of the, the, the country can, can use rentals for events in their home. And it is very complicated and cumbersome to use a rental company. I don't know how to do it. You have to choose the fork and the glass and the knife. And, and our company is all about curation and community and, you know, communication back to what we talked about before. And yeah. so while we are becoming hopefully the rental, especially in Corona, who would have ever known that, there was weeks where we thought, oh, great, a party planning company or a rental service for parties at home in Corona. But now everyone's turning inward and everyone is going back to the table mm-hmm. at home. And, you know, life's, life's moments are worth celebrating. We have to keep celebrating. We have to keep making them special. And we have to keep finding ways to move forward. And we really see our company as a way to do that. Mm. So what I find so remarkable is that all of your pursuits in life are grounded in relationships whether that be with a childhood friend, a stranger in an ice cream line, spiking a volleyball to a teammate, or raising children with your life partner. What do you believe to be the secret to human connection? I think recognizing that you, you know, you never know what's happening in someone else's shoes. Give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And 
just be your most authentic self. I think being your most authentic self and striving for that every day, even if you may not know who or what that is, if you're striving for that, then that's like the human condition, right? That we, we are conditioned to be a million different things. And so as you grow with just life experience that you can just continue to condition yourself to, to honor how you honor yourself. Mm-hmm. And by honoring yourself, you then honors, you honor everyone else around you. And that happens, I think, uh, through authentic self representation through your work and your life and your family. And, you know, I think that's all you can ask for. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I anticipate as I become more invested in, in my career as an ice dancer is defining my identity beyond the sport and kind of understanding who Lila is beyond Lila the skater. And you've progressed through so many roles in your life with such poison conviction. And I sense that all the different titles, there's going to be more to come that you will, will take on. So how have you been able to dive below such titles and access your consistent identity as Amy beneath it all? Well, I'd like to think that a title's really never meant anything to me. I mean, titles still don't mean much to me and they don't mean a lot to John in terms of how you treat someone or who you really are. And I think that's, that's sort of at the core who I am. And so, you know, as I said to you, that's, it's a daily, a daily struggle that's beautiful because right. There's, when I look at darkness and lightness, you can't have both at any one time. And life is really, isn't it about living somewhere in between and Mm -hmm. you sort of dive into the darkness then to find the light and you're in the light and you got to go back in the darkness to find out more about yourself. And, you know, if you hide behind the titles and you hide behind the accomplishments, um, then then really, who are you? Yes. So, yeah. I think that's something that that I try every day to to continue to ask myself who who, who am I and how can I, and how can I be a better me so I can better serve others. Mm. Wow, that's profound. And Amy, now it's time to cool down. That's our tough workout. So I am feeling very, very, I feel like I've definitely worked out. Good, good. So what is the most creative party that you've ever attended? Uh, there's sort of two that stick out in my mind because they're both such special occasions for friends. One was for a friend um, who lives in Europe. Um, we had a, her birthday in Spain and it was, it was filled with just different events, every different evenings. We went as friends, as couples for a few days. And every afternoon, every evening, it was all about just bringing everyone together in a different shape or form. And there was one evening where we had a, just all kinds of desserts out on the table. And they just, it was just about being together. And every time we were together, there was a new concept for the theme. And one day was relaxing by the pool. And one day was, you know, dancing in a nightclub. And so it was special because it was, it was incredible from in terms of surroundings and the parties, but also it was just the person that we were celebrating. But I would also say that I was most recently at a party, which I will now forever look back on in, um, before Corona and, uh, for friends who just loved to, to show shower their friends with, with a good time. And they created a weekend where we went away as couples for an anniversary and they had sort of an Alice in Wonderland theme of going down the rabbit hole. And Ooh. we just got to relax and be together and be on a beach and there was surfing and yoga and, people just were together, which was, yeah. you know, has not really been the case since then. So I'll always remember that moment and there's a lot of chill music and, and sleeping late and something that I hope we'll be able to do again soon as, as the world changes and continues to evolve. Yeah. And in giving so much to others and gaining so much from entertaining and making connections, when do you find stillness and how do you honor your introverted side? Are you a psychologist? I'm studying psychology. Yeah, well, you're really good at it. Oh, you know, you. I think that is the eternal question. Right. I think that, you know, you can only really find yourself in the slowing down. And the slowing down is so scary to someone who is type A, high achieving. It's not really, like a, it doesn't have to necessarily be a slowing down of the schedule or the achievements or whatever that might be. But, you know, you really have to sit with yourself and sometimes the running around and the busyness is because there's discomfort there and i think that when you can really sit with yourself and like feel the emotions and and slow yourself down 
then then you can really find out who you are. So that's the hardest thing for me. It's very, very hard to, to slow down. It's very, very hard. But once you get under the surface, because you've slowed down, then, then it really, life can open up. Mm, I can relate to that for sure. Amy, what is your favorite quote at the moment? Oh my goodness. Well, it's probably very apropos to this, but it is true and it's probably overused, but it was the quote that I used in in my when I was training and for a lot of races and it was the quote from Glenda the Good Witch in the Wizard of Oz frankly my dear you've always had the power but you had to learn it for yourself mm-hmm. and that goes back to sitting with yourself and all the other things we talked about right yes. and uh, yeah I mean, it's very very true you have to believe in yourself and you have to to um to dive in and and know that you you have the power to do what you want to do and, and to give to others and final question, Amy, what is your number one book recommendation? Oh, yes, yes. Um, well, it's an oldie but a goodie, and I've read it a few times, so it just makes me happy to think about it, and it's A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And it's just an old book about a coming-of-age story. And so, you know, my daughters can read it, I can read it again and learn something from it, and it's a book that I give to others. I love that. And this recommendation will be put to good use because on my show, I give my guests the book that was recommended by my previous guest. So you oh, have, I love that. You have a recommendation. That's, thoughtful. That's so thoughtful. Oh, thank you. So you have a recommendation from a Canadian Olympic skier called Emily Bryden from Fernie, BC. And she recommended the book Educated by Tara Westover. I'm sure you've heard I've of read it. it. You read I it. I love it. It's oh, magical. Good. Fantastic. I'm so happy we're on the same wavelength. Oh, I'm so glad. So maybe that's something to read again in the future. But Amy, thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, for all of the positive energy that you radiate. I think you're the real life Glinda the Good Witch. And it was just such uh-huh. a pleasure to speak to you today. Well, the next time around, I get to interview you because you are doing incredible things. I'm so proud of you. And thank you for taking the time to do the research on me and for caring and sharing a story. And um, and, and congrats on all that's, that's happening for you because you're in, on such a wonderful journey. Thank you. So much ahead of you. I'm Lila, and you've been listening to The Lila Joe Show. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't yet, head over to Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next time for another episode. Thanks for listening.